Today's scripture reading is from Romans 9, 30 through chapter 10, 4. So that's Romans 9, 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. Please stand as we honor God with his word. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in teaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the living God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We know that your word is powerful. We know that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will live forever. We thank you, Father, that you have elected a people before the foundation of the world. We thank you, Father, that we know as we come to this text that you are the sovereign Lord God who decrees the end from the beginning. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word to give us a balance and and point us to the fact that there is human responsibility, Lord God. That you call us to submit to your word, to trust in your son, Father. Father, we pray that today will be the day, Lord, that those who have a a zeal for you, but don't know you, that today they will come to you, that you will bring, draw them to yourself and show that they have been chosen before the foundation of the world. And we pray, Father, that those who you've loved, that you have saved, pray that we will grow in your word today, that, that we will walk out of here more in awe, more in love of you, and more in awe of your glory. We pray, Father, we thank you, Father, for Pastor Chris. We thank you that we can trust that he every week just labors hard with the word and the text. And we can trust that he'll be faithful to proclaim it with boldness. And God, we know this is true because you continue to strengthen him. And we thank you, God. We pray that you will strengthen him in a, in a more powerful way today and that you'll give him this unction and power to proclaim your word with boldness. And we pray, Holy Spirit, 
that you will pierce our hearts, transform our lives. We pray, God, all this in Jesus' powerful and beautiful name. Amen. Anybody that knows me uh, knows that I am competitive. Yeah, my uh, family will let you know that on a regular basis. Um, now, I, I think I'm just, I like to play games. I'm competitive in a negative way, um, but they think that I am, so I guess I am. But in any kind of competition that you get involved in, whether it's a board game or whether it's the Olympics, in any kind of competition, there are rules for the competition. There's an object of that competition. What is it about? And there is a means of winning that competition. In American football, for instance, the, the object of the competition is to get the ball into the end zone that's yours and not the other team's end zone. And at the same time, preventing the other team from scoring, from getting into their end zone. Now, there are a lot of rules, a lot of regulations. Every member of the team has to know those rules and regulations, and certainly the coaches have to know those rules and regulations as well and follow them. And the means of winning, whatever team scores the most points, they win that game. 60 minutes, unless they go into overtime, that's how much time they have to score as many points as possible. Now, if it was a track meet instead of a football game, the object of the competition is to be the fastest one around the track. No matter how short the distance or how long the distance, it is whoever goes the fastest and arrives at the end before anyone else. There are rules. Generally, you're not allowed to trip the guy next to you or bump into them or knock them down in any way. You're supposed to stay in your lane or stay on the course that has been marked out and, uh, and completed. And the means of winning is to cross the finish line first. The track might be 100 meters or it might be 26 miles in a marathon. But the rules are pretty much the same and the goal is pretty much the same. Then you have table games, cornhole, bowling, skeet shooting, uh, fishing contests, wrestling, all forms of competition that people get involved in. But they all, to be competition, have to have those three things. You have to have the object of the context, contest, you have to have the rules of the contest, and you have to have some means of concluding that contest. But what happens if one or more of the competitors misinterprets any one of those three things. It would be a bit confusing, couldn't it? Take, for instance, a person who's used to playing golf. So if they're used to playing 
golf, they might mistakenly think that the object of cornhole, do you guys know what cornhole is? It's this little thing that's got a hole in the end and you got bean bags and you try to toss the bean bags into the hole, right? So they might mistakenly think the object of the cornhole is to have the lowest score because that's what it is in golf. Whoever has the lowest score. So they might think that it's having the lowest score. Or a person who's used to playing cornhole, they might purposely miss in a, 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 uh, and, and strike out because, let's say the score is tied and there's bases are loaded and they're afraid that they would score too many runs and go over and they have to start all over again. Because that's the rule of cornhole. If you go over 21 or whatever the score is set, then you have to start back again. The Apostle Paul, in our text today, is identifying a problem that the Jews had that's very similar to what we've just described. Israel, not so much the nation, but the, the Jews within Israel took their faith seriously, but they didn't know the rules for eternal life. Therefore, they made up their own rules, or their own interpretation, I should say, of those rules. And as a result, our text says, God disqualified them from eternal life. So Paul explains their mistakes for us, and then he identifies for us what are the... What is the correct object of this thing called eternal life? What are the rules for attaining it? And what is the goal, the ultimate goal? And that can all be summarized in our theme from this passage today. God's glorious salvation comes by Christ alone. Simple, easy, and yet very hard to follow. God's glorious salvation comes by Christ alone. Now, if you were a strict Jew in the first century, you would have thought that you knew how to obtain eternal life. The strict Jews would have been raised like Paul says about Timothy, that he was raised from infancy in the Scriptures. And so, the more... Gentiles were believing and being saved, and Jews, it was causing some confusion. Why is it? Did God change the rules? You know, sort of right in the middle of the game. You've ever played a game with kids, right? And especially a game where they're kind of in control of the game. Somehow the rules keep changing as you go along so that they are always winning? Well, did God change the rules in the middle of life that more Gentiles could be saved rather than Jews? Paul's addressed some of the answers to the questions in verses 1 to 29, but now he tackles this question, the question about rule changes. And he begins by saying, no. God has not changed the rules. The rules of the game have remained the same, exactly the same, from the beginning. There has been no change. 
God has always had the one target to pursue. Only one thing that God has for us that we need to head for. And that target for human beings has always been righteousness. That's what the book of Romans is all about. Uh, For those who were here during the Sunday school hour, uh, we talked about that. We talked about what is the righteousness of God. Romans 1, 16 and 17, that's the the theme statement for the book of, of Romans. And so in that theme statement in the book of Romans, Paul says that, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then he says, and in that gospel, that gospel that brings salvation, in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that's what the whole book has been about up to this point. Righteousness. The righteousness of God. For us, that means having a right relationship with God. Righteousness is a right relationship with God that results in us obeying God, living for God, glorifying God. That was the target of the Old Covenant. And it's the target of the New Covenant. It hasn't changed. In verse 30, he claimed that the Gentiles understood that. that they, 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 they caught that. But in verse 31, he says the Jews didn't. That they missed it. Verse 31 says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. So they, they, they're going to set a target. We're going to see that in a few minutes. All right? They're going to set a target, but their target's going to be the wrong target. Their target is going to be the law rather than the righteousness of God. Big difference between those two things. Let me ask you, don't answer out loud, but how can you have eternal life? How can you have eternal life? Think about that for a moment. What does that mean? I used to ask people two questions. It came from Evangelism Explosions uh, training. And when I was trying to help them understand salvation, I'd ask them two questions. The first question was, if you died tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Simple question. It's a yes or no question. You know, most of the time, I never got a yes or no answer. It's like, I think so. I hope so. Well, maybe. So then you ask a second question. So if you were to die tonight, and you were to stand before God, and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? You don't want to answer yes or no? (laughs) Then give me a bigger answer. You're standing before God. It's the day of judgment. He says, here's heaven, there's hell. How are you going to get here and not there? What's going to be the answer? You see, if you have the wrong target in mind, if you're pursuing the wrong target, you're going to give the wrong answer. 
And the vast majority of people that I've asked that question to have given the wrong answer. Why should I let you into my heaven? Most often the answer comes back with something like, well, I'm a good person. I've tried to do the best that I can. I think I'm okay. I think I'm good. I try to treat people right. And a faithful Jew in the first century would have given pretty much that same answer. But theirs would have been a bit stronger than that. You see, a faithful Jew would have said something like this. Because I have faithfully kept the law that you, God, gave. I've been faithful in keeping your law. You gave it to Moses, and I've done what you, God, told me I should do. So you should let me into heaven, because I've done what you told me to do in that law. But Paul says, that's the wrong target. God did not design the law to be the target to be pursued. That's not what the game is about, in other words. The target was righteousness, not obedience to the law. Righteousness is having a right relationship, a right standing before God. Having a living, vital relationship with the God who created you. The God who offers salvation. And that has always been the goal. Under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and under the New Covenant, in the New Testament. But how did God intend for that relationship to come about? How did God intend for us to have the righteousness of God? Well, there's never been lots of ways. God has always had one track on which you can prosper. One track for you to follow. He's got one target and one track for getting to that target. In our current culture, you often hear that there are many ways. As long as you're sincere, as long as you're sincere, you can find a way that will lead to eternal life. My friends, few religious people have been as sincere as the Jews that Paul was talking about here in this text. I don't care how religious they are, there are very few that can match the Jews in how the Jews followed the law. You remember Paul's words, right? As to the outward acts of righteousness, of the law, he said, I was perfect. How many other people, how many other religions, people in other religions could say that? And yet Paul says here in this text, they're aiming at the wrong target. They were running the wrong track. And therefore, they're disqualified. Paul has talked about this issue all the way through the ninth chapter, up until this point. In chapter 9, he's made it very clear that life is not about how good you can be. Look at verse 31. It says, 
but that Israel has pursued, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. No matter how hard they tried. Because they were going on the wrong path. They never attained what they were pursuing. In other words, the Jews were running in a wrong direction. Jesus himself made that clear when he said, I am the way. I'm the track. I am the way. And yet they crucified him. Which shows that they were running, aiming for the wrong goal in their relationship with God. If the Jews had been on the right track, that would have led them to the same thing that it led the Gentiles that he's talking about in this passage. It would have led them to faith in Jesus Christ. And in that faith in Jesus Christ, they would have had eternal life. But instead, they're heading on the wrong track. They're making up their own course. They're making up their own rules of how to attain eternal life. Look again at verse 31. It says, they pursued, they, they ran after a law that could lead them into right relationship with God. All right? So their, their, their goal was not righteousness and relationship with God. Their goal was the law. Let me see if I can keep this law. Let me see if I can be better than Matt at doing this. Let me see if I can, can, can be a, a stronger individual than Antoinette in this area. You see, they were looking at the law as the end, which it never intended to be. And so they chose the wrong track in following the law. They thought that keeping the law itself provided eternal life, which led to national and individual pride. And pride comes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Remember the parable that Jesus told the uh, Pharisee about the Pharisee and the tax collector? Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What was he doing? He was saying, I've got it made. I reached the goal. The goal is following the law. And I followed the law. I did it better than that guy over there did. So therefore, I'm in. You know, today, not only the Jews, but many professing Christians still think that same way. They approach their faith the same way that the Jews did. They believe that God will only let them to heaven if they believe on Jesus and do what the law says. That is the law in their own mind. Whatever it is, you can tell the track that people are on when trouble comes into their lives. And what happens when trouble comes into their lives? They think, well, I must have offended God. I've got to do something to make God like me. I've got to, I've got to do something to make God happy with me again. 
I, I must have missed something somewhere along the line. So I'm going to start coming to church more often. I'm going to give more in the offering plate. I'm going to try to do more good deeds to help people. I want to try to live a better life. They think that way because they have a wrong target. They want to get to heaven and they want to be blessed here on earth. That's their target. That's their goal. For the Jews, it was keeping the law. But, but for people today, it's, I want to be blessed by God now, and I want to make it to heaven. But that's not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is the righteousness of God, which comes through a relationship with God. And so they're running on the wrong track, and the end of that track, the scripture says, is death. And when I say the word death, it makes people shudder, especially right now. This COVID virus has made one thing clear. Many people love physical life more than they love God. God calls us to use wisdom when we're dealing with things like this disease. Just as you would not walk out in front of a Mack truck, you shouldn't simply just go around without any caution, taking any protections from the virus. But wisdom and fear are two very different things. We have professing Christians who are panicked over the virus. That means that they fear death more than they fear God. You see, no Christian should ever fear death. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And what greater joy could we have than to be in the presence of God? Jesus came, according to Hebrews 2, to strip Satan of his power of causing people to fear death. We don't need to fear death. We should be wise. Paul, when he was in Damascus, and they had, were watching the gate, they were going to arrest him and put him to death, he gets let down over the wall by a rope. He didn't walk out in front of the Mack truck. That's wisdom. But it wasn't because he was afraid of dying. So notice then, the writer of Hebrews states, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's not going, hey, 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 take me to the cross so I can die. But he wasn't afraid to die. Not my will, but yours be done. His goal in life was not to live as long as he could. His goal in life was to live for the glory of God. And if that meant going to the cross the next day, then he'd go to the cross. So, the one trap 
that we need to pass by is the trap that makes you stumble in the pursuit of righteousness. Human beings, Jews and non-Jews alike, are pursuing a target that will follow a certain track that they think will lead to heaven. And all along the way of life, there are many pitfalls, many things that will distract us and will eventually lead to eternal damnation. That's what we see in verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone is Christ. Jesus Christ is that stone that they stumbled over. But the stumbling stone is not just ignoring Christ, not even just ignoring Christ crucified. The stumbling stone is pursuing a righteousness as a goal in itself and not faith in Christ as the goal. The trap is thinking that you can get to God by, uh, by living in a way that makes God like you or please you. To, to live out a goodness. According to verse 32, though, that's not the goal. That will lead to destruction. The stumbling stone was Christ, not because even that we seek to pursue Christ, but it is only through Christ and faith in Christ that we can have the righteousness of God and a relationship with him. Jesus becomes the stumbling stone because to have faith in Jesus means you have to admit that you have nothing to offer to God. See, that's why the Jews stumbled over Christ. Because he kept telling them, you're not not in a right relationship with God. And they kept saying, yes, we are. No, you're not. That's what the Gospels are all about, the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're on the wrong track. You're headed in the wrong direction. They're going, no, we aren't. We've got the law. We've studied the law. We've followed the law. We know where we're headed. We know what we're supposed to do. We can read Jesus' answer to them is, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. This is how you're interpreting it. But this is what I tell you, is what God intended, what God meant. Few people are willing to admit that they have nothing to offer God. It would mean that their own efforts weren't good enough. That they really are heinous sinners in the eyes of God. And who wants to look in the mirror and say, you are horribly sinful. The majority of humans fall into the trap of self-righteousness. God will accept me. If I do the right things at the right time, I'm going to be accepted by God. If I believe the right things, if I say the right things, if I do the right things, God is going to accept me. 
And that's why true Christian faith is so rare that Jesus said, narrow is the way and few that find it. Lots of people call themselves Christians. Just as many people in the days of Paul called themselves Israelites or Jews. But the word Israelite means one who wrestles with God. And very few Jews had wrestled with God over their sinfulness. Very few had recognized that they had nothing to offer God. Instead, they sought to impress one another. And therefore, thinking they were impressing God by the way they lived. And that's a danger that still remains today, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Making it so critical for God's people We have the one truth that we ought to protect. Jesus Christ alone can give us righteousness. That is right standing before God. Jesus alone. You know, I don't know how to improve on what Paul says there in chapter 10, verse 2. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. You see, Paul is not saying Jews are horrible people. He's not saying that, that those Israelites, that, that, you know, they're, they're, they're heathens, just like the, the barbarians off in some other country. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that they have a zeal for God. They have the, the law, and they under, they, they've read the law, and they're trying to pursue that law. <clears throat> He'd say the same thing today, wouldn't he, for our Hasidic communities? The Jewish people have a great zeal for God and a great zeal for his law. If you go to a Jewish hospital, you will find a Sabbath elevator. But on the Sabbath... It stops on every floor so the Jew doesn't have to work by pushing the button. And sometimes if you're walking through a Jewish neighborhood, you may be asked to come into their house and shut off the light or, or turn it on or, or to do uh, something similar to that so they don't violate the command of working on the Sabbath day. The clothing they wear the tassels on their clothes, the the sideburns, all show their zeal for God and their love for the law. Paul himself knew what he was talking about when he said this. In his zeal, he had overseen the, the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He traveled towards Damascus in order to arrest those that he believed were teaching heresy in Judaism, arresting these people the way, as they called them back then. When Paul became a believer, in city after city, the Jews sought to arrest him. They rioted in the streets of Corinth and Thessalonica, even though they could have been arrested and thrown into prison for doing so. They stoned him in Lystra, and they arrested him in Jerusalem. They did it all for zeal for God. At least that's what they thought. But they missed the knowledge of the one truth that mattered. Jesus of Nazareth 
was and is the Messiah that brings the only righteousness that God accepts for eternity. Today, Catholics have a zeal without knowledge. Like Elder Sean, the Catholics gathered yesterday outside of the abortion clinic to pray and to warn women seeking an abortion. With a far greater zeal than most Baptists and and evangelicals, we see the Roman Catholics hard at work praying to Mary, a dead woman. Faithfully, they do the rosary. They confess to their priests. They attend Mass. They baptize their infants and send their children to catechism class, and they celebrate First Holy Communion. But they don't know the Savior that provided all that was necessary already for them to have a righteousness of God. We could say the same for Mormons. They take two years of their lives to go and be missionaries for their God. Or how about Jehovah's Witnesses who are willing to go door-to-door to evangelize? We're not willing to share the gospel with our family and friends. They're willing to go door-to-door to strangers, even though they might get that door slammed in their face. Zeal. And Muslims, they pray five times a day. The average Christian prays less than a minute a day. The Muslims, five times a day, no matter where they are. If they are good Muslims. And how about the Hindu sadhus who lie in a bed of nails? Or the Japanese Buddhists that walk on hot coals to show their zeal for their faith. And yet not one of them will enter into heaven by doing any of those things. Which is why Christians claim to have the one truth for salvation, eternal life. And that is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because of that great truth, Christians have the one trade that they need to prevent in their own lives and the lives of the people around them. It is a trade that the Jews made that cost them eternal life. You see, Jesus reversed this trade. Jesus said, trade everything for the pearl of great price for him. They were willing to trade it all. Give up everything for him. But the Jews did the opposite. Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They traded the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ for a righteousness of their own. And that's the trade that they made. God already prepared the way. He already made sure that you could be the winner, that you would not lose in the game of life, in the competition. He provided it by faith in Jesus Christ and that alone, and they said, no. We 
are going to run our own race. But Jesus already finished it. Jesus already completed the race. He's already made it all the way. He's already accomplished all that's necessary. He's there. And by faith, you're there with him. Oh, no, no, no. No, I've got to run this race. I've got to go. I've got to do it myself. That's what I hear from people all the time. Faith in Jesus Christ knows that he has accomplished it. He's done all that's necessary. But people aren't satisfied with that. What do I have to do? How can I get there? How can I make it? And so the Jews traded the righteousness of Christ that comes by faith for their own righteousness. The righteousness of God that Paul says they were ignorant of. The righteousness that he described back in chapter 3. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone for all who believe. So the whole book of Romans, everything in this book, has made an argument that there is no such thing as human righteousness, that no one is righteous, no, not one. Made that argument again and again and again and again all the way through this book. And now in our text, in verse 3, Paul says that the Jews made a trade-off. If a person doesn't seek the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone as their only hope, then they're trading it for something that will destroy them. And he says, seeking to establish their own righteousness. Let me ask you something. How clean can a pig be if he's in a pigsty? Hmm. You know, when I was growing up on our small farm, uh, we raised pigs just one time. That was enough. Didn't matter. We would go and we'd you know, put fresh straw and all that, you know, in the pigsty, so they'd have a nice bed to lay in. They didn't. They'd lay in the mud. No matter what you tried to do to get them to stay clean, they just paw that straw right down into the mud. And... Well, how much righteousness can a sinner have living in a sinful world? About as much as a pig can have living in a pigsty. That's what chapters 1 to 3 is already pounded into our heads. So how can you establish your own righteousness? That's what the Jews are trying to do. Apart from the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to offer God when he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Because I've been the best person that's ever lived? Not good enough. You're a pig in a pigsty. There is no such thing as a person who has goodness. As Jesus said, there's only one who is good, and that is God. It's one trade that every Christian parent wants to prevent with their children. 
or their family, or their friends. They don't want us to swap our righteousness for Christ's righteousness. Even trying to swap out Mary's righteousness or the saints' righteousness. Foolish trade. They have no righteousness to offer. They need a Savior, just as you and I need a Savior. Which brings us to the final point of this message. The one term that we need to practice. You see, Jesus Christ is the end of the law. It's a means of attaining eternal life. He is the end of it. He is the completion of it. He is the finality of it. And that's what verse 4 affirms. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, is Paul saying that the, righteous, that the law is no good? Not at all. Remember back in chapter 7, he says the law is good, it's right, it came from God. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's making the law the goal. That's what's wrong. Well, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for you and I who believe. In other words, you and I no longer have to set the law as the standard that I have to accomplish in order for God to accept me. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that he is the righteousness of God, he is the one who has fulfilled it all. I asked you earlier what you would tell God if he asked you why he should let you into heaven. Well, what are the terms that God requires? Well, that's a bad question. Because God doesn't require terms. He requires a term. One term. Faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only means of right standing before God. There's only one key that fits the gate of heaven. There's only one password that can open that door. There's only one facial recognition that will match the heavenly software, and that's Jesus Christ. Mother Teresa won't do it. Gandhi will fail. Muhammad can't pass the test. Mary, the mother of Jesus, needs her own Savior. Billy Graham, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even the Apostle Paul, they all fall short. Try as you may, you cannot establish your own righteousness and be acceptable before God. When our passage says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, it does not mean that the law is gone. It means that Jesus Christ is the only one who has fulfilled it and therefore is the only one who is acceptable before God. Check out what that means in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he, that is God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. How do we attain it? Not through anything that we've done or will do. We attain it one way, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In Sunday school, we learned that there are two aspects to the righteousness of God. One is called a forensic aspect. That is, it is 
the declaration that God gives and says, not guilty. As the judge, he is just and the justifier, which means that he can declare us as if we have not sinned, as if we were perfectly right before him. That's the one side of the coin, but the other side is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. It is the power of God for transformation, the power of God to change. It is not you that changes you. It is the Holy Spirit in you that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So we begin by faith and we continue by faith. And our lives are transformed and changed because of Jesus Christ. Declared not guilty before God. And at the same time, made not guilty before God by the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The power of the Holy Spirit that is the Spirit of Christ in us. The hope of glory, that living hope we sang about that will allow us to stand before the Holy God. And so I ask you, in your mind, how can you attain eternal life? Remember I asked that question earlier? Was your answer what I just said? Or was your answer, well, I need to believe on Jesus and I need to do what God wants me to do? You see, if you added that second part, you're right with the Jews. You're trying to run a race that you can't win. I need to believe on Jesus Christ so that he can run the race for me, so that he can win the race. And that's my only hope. And I hope that it's yours. Have you figured out that your own way is the wrong way? Or are you seeking God's glory by God's way, which is faith in Jesus Christ alone? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts today. This is the last time in this book that we will hear this phrase, the righteousness of God. And yet the whole rest of the book is about how we're supposed to live a right life, how we're supposed to do the right thing. Why is it that we won't be hearing about the righteousness of God anymore? Because doing the right thing is not about pleasing God. Doing the right thing is about being transformed by God. And so we pray that you will clarify our minds. They had zeal for God, but without knowledge. Clarify our minds so that we understand the truth that our life, that we live, is not about how good we can be, but how good Christ can be and is both in saving us, justifying us, sanctifying us, and ultimately glorifying us for the glory of God. Amen.